pray. Father, thank you for what a just a sweet thing to sing of the beauty of Christ. That he's fairer uh, than the sunshine, that all of the stars combined pale in comparison to his glory. That all the angels in their glory are insignificant in comparison to the glory of our Lord Jesus. And we thank you for him. And we pray, Lord, that as we study your word now, that you would give us insight and clarity as we seek to understand your truth. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Isaiah, chapter 40. In 1961, a man named A.W. Tozer made the following indictment against the church of his day. The church, he wrote, has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking and worshiping men. And this she has done, not deliberately, but little by little, and without her knowledge. And her very unawareness of this only makes her situation all the more tragic. And he went on to say, It is my opinion that the Christian conception of God, current in these middle years of the 20th century, is so decadent, so degenerate, as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something of a moral calamity. It's a pretty sober evaluation. In short, Tozer's indictment was that the contemporary church of his day had lost sight of the greatness of God. And I wonder what his indictment would be today. What do you think? Do you look around at the contemporary evangelical movement and think, here is a people enthralled with the greatness of God? Well, to lose sight of God's greatness is a tragedy. It brings dishonor to God, and it results in what Tozer called a moral calamity. For corporate bodies, for churches, for nations, but also for individuals. And when we look at the history of God's people, we can see very clearly the sort of moral calamity that results from losing sight of the glory, the greatness of God. And you'll remember as we come to Isaiah 40, that Isaiah 40 is a salvation prophecy directed towards God's people who were in Babylonian exile. And their country, the, the uh, city of Jerusalem, um, the, the nation of Judah, the nation of Israel had fallen already. But the people of Judah had been carried off into exile because their country had been conquered. Their temple, which represented God's presence with his people, had been destroyed. It also represented God's power with his people. And it was now 
um, left with no stone upon the other. And the people of Judah had also lost their homes, their fortunes, their families, and had been carried off to a foreign nation. It's what we call the exile, the Babylonian exile. And the situation, to put it lightly, was not pleasant. In most cases, families had been torn apart by the Babylonians. Children ripped from their parents, and in some cases killed. There are psalms moaning and, and, and lamenting the loss of children. Fathers were taken away and enslaved. Mothers taken and enslaved. Children separated from parents, never to see them again. This is a nightmare. It's a terrible situation for God's people. And somewhere along the way, God's people began to lose sight of His greatness. Now, they had sinned, of course, and the, the reason for their exile was they had broken their covenant with God. But during their exile, there, there is an evident, rapid decline in Judah's view of God. So much so that when the prophet comes to them and gives them the promise, promise of Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11 that we've looked at over the past few times I've preached, the promise of comfort, of hope, the promise of salvation. They are unable. They're unmoved by the greatness of God's promise because they've lost sight of the greatness of God. Little by little, in the midst of their suffering, they had begun to question God's wisdom, God's power, God's greatness. And the result of that, the result of their diminished view of God, was that they no longer believed that God was able to uphold His Word. And so, the promise of Isaiah 41-11 has to be, or is, punctuated with a, a, a long section from verse 12 all the way to the end of the chapter, unfolding the greatness of God. Because, what is a promise without a powerful God to bring it about. The people of Judah received Isaiah's words of, of comfort and promise. And because of their small view of God, they essentially yawned. They wouldn't believe it. God was calling them to rejoice in their coming salvation, but their view of God had become degenerate. They saw him as having no power. And, and actually, they're, they're essentially fixated on themselves. Right? Is that, that's typically what happens in seasons of prolonged trial. Uh, we get so um, down and discouraged and our heads are down looking at our feet and we lose sight of the greatness of God. For them... The theme of their life had essentially become Isaiah 40, verse 27. Look, look there with me. God says to them, why, why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel? Here's their assertion. My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. So he's asking them, why do you say this? And I've heard you murmuring about something. 
Why are you saying that your way or my way is hidden from the God? What is leading you to speak such theological nonsense? Where is this coming from? My way is hidden from my God. Really? Your, your way? You think now, all of a sudden, that your way is hidden from God. That your situation is outside of God's view. You think that He doesn't see you. That He doesn't know and sympathize with your plight. You think that He doesn't care about your struggle and your pain. Why are you saying that, Israel and Judah? Where is that coming from? And they go further and they say, the justice due us has escaped the notice of God. Something is wrong with God. He doesn't see our situation. He doesn't see the injustice that we have experienced. And perhaps he's impotent to do anything about it. But he says, why do you say this? What is it that's leading you to say such, uh, such heretical things, such nonsense? What's leading you to say this? And this is, this is what was leading them to say it. They were speaking this way because they had lost sight of the greatness of God. Mark this. Whenever you lose sight of the greatness of God, you will inevitably doubt His love. You'll doubt His promise. You'll doubt His provision. When we lose sight of His greatness, we shrink God down to the confines of our existence and we make Him like us. And when we do that, that is... When we shrink God down, that's when the moral calamity comes. Because our joy... Our peace, our security as Christians, our hope, our comfort is all tied up with your vision and view of the greatness of God. Small God, small hope. Once you lose sight of God's greatness, you begin to gradually lose everything. Everything hinges on the greatness and the power of our God. Lose sight of this and you're on the brink of a calamity. The problem we face today is is similar to the problem that was facing the people of Judah and Israel. They were surrounded by a pagan culture. A culture that was constantly pulling them down in their view of God. Constantly Constantly exerting this force that they would, they would think less of God than they ought to think. And not only that, we have our own trials. And in the midst of trials, we, we, we can lose our perseverance. And we grow weary and tired. And we think things that we would have never otherwise thought. And our heads are down and we feel the weight of the world, it seems. And we lose sight of God's greatness. If we ever needed a fresh sight of the majesty and greatness of God, I think it's now. And so Isaiah 40 comes to us like, you know, like a, a splash of cold water on someone who's asleep. It's coming and says, wake up. Wake up. Get up. Look. Behold 
the greatness of God. And the text before us in Isaiah 40 is especially aimed to help us comprehend something of the greatness of God. So if you would say this morning, I've been in a season of trial, and I think I'm beginning to lose sight of God's greatness. Well, then you need to hear Isaiah 40. Uh, If you're here and you say, I have been so distracted by the busyness of Christian life. I've been serving in church and doing this and doing that and work has been busy. And I look back and I can't remember the last time I just thought about the majesty of God. Well, you need Isaiah 40. And if you're here this morning and you have never caught, have seen a vision of the great God that we are gathered here to worship, then you need Isaiah 40. So I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah 40, and we'll look at verses 12, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I want us to see that Isaiah is going to make five comparisons, five comparisons that are meant to help us grasp something of the greatness of God. So we'll see a comparison between God and nature, God and wisdom, God and the nations, God and idols, and then God and kings. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales behold he lifts up the islands like fine dust even Lebanon is not enough to burn nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering all the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces the rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither 
and the storm carries them away like stubble. You may be seated. So in a series of questions, Isaiah lays out these five comparisons. Now, we're not going to cover all five today. We're just going to cover the first three that span verse 12 to verse 17. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll cover the next two, the last two of the chapter. But we see a comparison here of God and nature, God and wisdom, and God and the nations. And the first comparison that Isaiah makes to help us comprehend something of the greatness of God is the comparison of God and nature. It's in verse 12. There is perhaps no greater illustration of sheer power for human humans to observe than the power that we see in nature. You think of the power of wind, of tornadoes and hurricanes. Think of water, the power of water, tsunamis, of, of rivers who's, who've overflowed their banks, of whirlpools. Think of the power of earth, of earthquakes, of volcanoes. These things of nature stand before us and they have tremendous power. And before them, we feel like nothing. And so it makes perfect sense that the first uh, example or comparison that Isaiah would give to help us understand the greatness of God is the comparison of God and nature. It's as if Isaiah calls the class together And what he wants to do is help us understand who God is. And he does so by asking a series of questions. And and the class is in front of him. And the class has perpetually doubted God's ability. He brings them in front of him. And they're about to be rebuked. They know better. They've heard from the beginning. Of all the people on the earth, God's people. Judah and Israel know who the Creator is. But they've forgotten. And so Isaiah calls them into class and he sets them down. And he graciously asks them a series of questions. Questions that they already know the answer to, but they have forgotten. They, along the way, have lost sight of God's greatness. And the first question is this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. The class is quiet. They all know the answer. It's as if Isaiah is saying, who among you, and who among the people that you were so impressed with in Babylon and afraid of, who among them is able to measure the vastness of the oceans in the hollow part of their hand. It's quiet. He says, okay. What about this? Who has marked off the heavens by the span? Who among the people that you are in awe of here in Babylon and are afraid of? And who among you who think that you are so powerful and so wise? are able to measure the expanse 
of the universe. And reduce the vastness of the heavens to the distance between your thumb and your pinky. Which of you can do that? Just for perspective, they would not have had this insight necessarily. But for us, in the 21st century, it's estimated that the observable universe or the heavens is 93 billion light years in diameter. If you know what that means, you're smart. (laughs) And if you can do the math for this, you're even smarter. A light year is something like 6 trillion miles. So a light year is 6 trillion miles, and the observable universe is 93 billion light years in diameter. It's incredible, isn't it? And, and, and God is said to have measured its expanse with the span of his hand. Third, which of you in this class has calculated the dust of the earth by the measure? Who among you is able to take the dust and the dirt of the earth and literally measure it in something like a third of a bushel basket? The word is a third, right? Gather it all up put it in the third of a bushel basket, and and the way this would work is that you would suspend it and and measure it. Right? Who who, who of you uh, here is able to do such a thing? Who of of you, which one of you here are the people that you fear, is able to gather up all of the dust and dirt and measure it and calculate its mass with such ease? Okay, that's what I thought. Fourth, who has weighed the mountains in a scale and the hills in a balance? Not just the dust and the dirt, but the mountains and the hills and picked up the scale to weigh it. This is remarkable power. The scales of the day were used for small tasks And here, they represent something of the immensity of God. Just consider. I read some facts this week about nature, which is one of the blessings of being able to teach God's Word. You get to read all sorts of wonderful things and think about the Lord. It's such a blessing. But I read this week that if you were to take Mount Everest and put it in the Mariana Trench, you would still have a mile of Mount Everest sticking up. (laughs) It's incredible. Uh, These mountains are enormous, and God weighs them and measures them with ease. What the class before Isaiah needed to see was that the God who created the universe was able to do whatever he pleased. They knew it. They had forgotten it. And, and, and so Isaiah, in order to just magnify this point for them, he starts off with nature, this comparison of nature. Nature seems so great to us, but when you set it alongside God, it's minuscule. But notice also that these verses highlight not just the power of God compared to nature, but also his unparalleled skill. 
the waters and the heavens and the dust and the mountains. That's essentially saying everything that exists is not only minuscule compared to God, but it's all been perfectly balanced by Him and perfectly measured. The mountains are exactly the right size. The oceans are exactly the right mass. The sun, the stars, all perfectly placed by God in order to accomplish His good purpose. In fact, the measurements of the earth are so finely measured that if things were just a fraction off, scientists say that the universe would be uninhabitable. If we change gravity, listen to this, if we change gravity by a tiny fraction of a percent, enough so that you and I say would be one billionth of a gram heavier or lighter, the universe becomes so different that there are no stars, galaxies, or planets. And with no planets, there would be no life. This is secular science. One scientist said, our world is so incredibly balanced that it is as if we are on the knife edge of existence. If we were to modify the constants of nature just slightly, life would never survive on earth. (laughs) What skill. What skill. Impossible precision. It's staggering to consider. And the way that Isaiah is asking these questions suggests that this did not cause God any sort of friction when he was doing it. There was no resistance. He measured it. He marked it. He weighed it. The totality of creation with every component part exactly the right size and in exactly the right place as it had to be. And all of this is insignificant to God. He didn't even have to strain to lift the mountains to measure them. This is his world and he is the sovereign. You know that class, right? And you just see the class is totally silent. And they're all internally rebuked for forgetting the most most fundamental reality that the globe we walk on is suspended by the Creator. The power of God, said the Puritan Stephen Sharnock, is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. How vain would it be if the, for the eternal counsels if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, God's mercy would be reduced to feeble pity. His promises reduced to empty sound. His threatenings a mere scarecrow. Without a clear vision of the greatness of God, His promises lack power. They will be as an empty gong in your ears. Who cares about God's redemptive purpose? If you lose sight of the greatness of God's power, you will doubt Him. You will question Him. You you will be unmoved by His word. The remedy to this is to see God afresh. 
to see him compared to the world he has made. See how big this place is that we live in. And then set God alongside of, him, of it and be amazed at his greatness. Let me ask you a question. Are you doubting God's power and ability in your trial? Are you doubting God's power and ability in your life? In that strained relationship? That difficult conversation? Are you doubting God's power and ability? Have you lost sight of his greatness? Lift up your eyes and behold the majesty of God. That's the counsel that God would give you. Get up, look, see, behold the greatness and the majesty of God. In trial, there is no sweeter comfort than to know that the God who's promised to be your shepherd is a God of immense power. We see this in Psalm 121, where the psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. So I'm going to get my eyes off of my feet, right? And my situation and my trials. I'm going to lift my eyes up to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Who did what? Who made the heavens and the earth. There is remarkable hope, comfort, strength, by getting your eyes off yourself onto the God who weighed and measured this planet. And you say, well, what does that have to do with my trial? Everything. Right? He is the one who has said, not a sparrow falls without my permission. You, you're of far greater value than the sparrows. He's your covenant God. And in Christ, He has become your Father. And he, he holds this world, this universe, together with remarkable ease. Trust Him. So, first, if we're going to, going to strive to see the greatness of God, we, we need to set God, as it were, alongside nature. And when we do so, we're floored by the power of God. But second, we see that Isaiah comes to the class and he, he sets before the class God and the wisdom of the nations. He wants them to see the greatness of God's wisdom. The greatness of His wisdom. It's one thing to have an incomprehensible God of power. It's another to have a God of unmatched wisdom. Look at verses 13 and 14. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as His counselor informed Him? With whom did He consult? And who gave Him understanding? And who taught Him the path of justice? And taught Him knowledge and informed Him of the way of understanding? It's a question of wisdom. The first question, who, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? This is probably a reference to Genesis 1, where the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. And we know that the Spirit of God 
had a place in the creation of the world. And so did the Son. It was a triune work of God. And so Isaiah says, whenever the Spirit was doing His work in creation, which of you in the class were there to to give Him direction? Okay. What about Nebuchadnezzar? Was, was he there for, for God's, um, just, to have God, just to have God's, um, you know, if God needed some help, was he there with God? Okay. And, and were any of you there? Okay. So why are, you, why are you now, at this point, giving him counsel? All right. So then he turns to a series of other questions that can be distilled, really, in in one. Who is wise enough to become the advisor to God? Who is wise enough to become the advisor of God? Verse 14, whom did he consult? Who gave him understanding? Who taught him the path of justice or knowledge or understanding? Which one of you is wise enough to become God's advisor? With which of you will God come uh, to get a better understanding of a situation? What about, what about a better understanding of justice? Which one of you is he going to come to and say, I'm having a difficulty knowing how to um, exact justice in this situation. Could you help me figure this out? Is there, any, is there anything more discouraging uh, than when you think someone has, you, know, you look up to someone as the leader, they've got the situation, you're always like, this person always has uh, things in control, and then something comes up, and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, they're going to take care of it. And then they come to you and say, what do you think we ought to do? It's like, uh, I don't know. If you don't know, I don't know. <laughs> so which one of you? has come to God and said, let, let me help you um, exact justice. W- which of you would come to God and say, God, let, let me teach you how to lead your people better. Let me teach you how you could arrange our exile to be a little more conducive to maybe comfort for us. The answer is obvious. None of you. The class is silent. Why? Because God is unmatched in his wisdom, and we all know that. But why do we forget that in trial? Because we've lost sight of the greatness of God. God needs no one to help him see our situation more clearly. He needs no one to be his advisor. He he does not need any of his creatures to tell him how he ought to work out his perfect plan. So don't do it. Don't try it. He doesn't need it. And here is Judah in exile, moaning and doubting God's power and God's wisdom. And because they are doubting God's power and wisdom, they've lost hope. They have experienced terrible pain and terrible suffering. And they've begun to say, how how could this be wise? How could this be the right thing? The justice due me escapes the notice of my God. This was very similar to the situation of Job 
You remember? Job had suffered so greatly. He'd lost his family, his wealth, his health. And the people that remained in his life were the kind of people that you just don't want around. Job had begun to lose sight of God's greatness until Job 38. God comes to him, which we read in our scripture reading, and God begins to help Job get his eyes off of himself himself, and onto the majesty of God. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Job, Gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the world? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? Really similar language to Isaiah 40. Since you know. Or where were you, Job, whenever I placed the boundaries on the oceans, and I said, thus far shall you come, and your proud waves shall come no further? Job, where, where were you? Where were you when I did all this? And Job is confronted with the reality that he has lost sight of God's greatness. And so, chapter 42, he confesses and repents I want you to turn there with me because I want you to see something. Um, Job 42, verse 1. The problem of losing, losing sight of God's greatness. Job 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. What is the ability to do all things? It's power. Sovereignty, power. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In a word, you have sovereign power. Verse 3, who is this that hides or darkens counsel without knowledge. And since, Job, you're not, you're not bringing clarity to the situation. You're actually confounding the situation. And then he says, Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. In a word, wisdom. Power and wisdom. He had lost sight of the power of God, his sovereignty, his power, his ability to do whatever he pleases, and his wisdom. And so, he says, verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I've beheld you. I've seen you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Once he beheld the greatness of God again, he started thinking clearly. He was having a moral calamity. Right? He was, his life was falling apart 
And internally, he too was struggling so immensely. And he had lost sight of God's greatness. The remedy? See God. Behold Him. In a moment of clarity, Job's vision of God was restored. He had saw the one whom he had lost sight of. With, with these things in line, with God magnified in his life, he could once again see clearly. His hope was restored. The promise of God to him was certain. And the love of God to him was clarified. When we lose sight of God's greatness, we inevitably will lose sight of his wisdom. You will say, why me? And we've all said it. This is something we, we all struggle with because of our internal struggles. We, we live in a culture that's pulling uh, our view of God down. And if we're not striving to comprehend more of the greatness of God, we'll be declining. And we'll doubt his wisdom. And we'll forget that he is the all-wise sovereign of the world. And that he is the one who carefully is overseeing Every trial we experience. The nations, um, nature, people, everyone is subject to him. And he uses it for his glory. Spurgeon tells the story of a woman on board a ship uh, who was terrified of an incoming storm. And while her husband, who was the captain of the ship, was calm and serene. And she asked him why he was so at peace whenever she was so distressed. Her husband didn't answer, but he drew his sword and he held it to her chest. And she smiled, and then he said, Why are you not afraid? This is a a sharp sword, and I could easily kill you with this sword. She said, I'm not afraid of a sword when it's wielded by my own husband. And so he said, neither am I afraid of a storm when it is my father who sends it and manages it. That's the kind of freedom and fearlessness you have when you have seen the greatness of God. Lose sight of that, you will cower in fear. At every threat, every potential threat will be magnified to you. You will be like the man that Jesus healed and he, he was not fully uh, recovered yet. And he said, the men are like trees. Right? Everyone looks big and every problem looks overwhelming. Because you, you don't have a clear sight of the greatness of God. One of my favorite hymns is one by William Cooper. It's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And the third line of the hymn says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Our feeble sense gets us in trouble. And we're tempted to challenge God's inscrutable wisdom. 
we're tempted to inform him a bit about what would be better. We forget that behind a frowning providence, there is God with his smiling face saying, who, who measured the mountains in a scale? Who, who was there to, to give me counsel when I created the world? But the wonderful thing about God is he, he, he never tires of saying that. <laughs> he never tires of coming to us when we've lost sight of his greatness and saying, okay, who, who informed me um, that I should receive their counsel? Who, 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 who directed me in the path of understanding? He, he doesn't grow weary of doing that to us. It makes me think of James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives without reproach. He never says, Randy, I gave you wisdom yesterday. I gave you wisdom 10 minutes ago. Won't you learn? No, he, he is as patient as he is powerful. And the last line of Cooper's hymn says this, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. That's a crucial reality. We have to maintain a clear vision of the greatness of God's wisdom in trial or we will. We will lose sight of his love, his kindness, his power, and his purpose. So, Christians must first strive to behold the greatness of God's power compared to nature. We also need to behold the greatness of God's wisdom over and against the wisdom of all of creation. And then thirdly, we need to behold and strive to behold the greatness of God's power in comparison to the collective strength of the nations. Look at verses 15 to 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are re regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. First thing we see in verses 15 and 17 is that the collective power of nations and their influence is utterly inconsequential to God. Did you know that? The collective power of the nations, Babylon, Syria, Egypt, the United States, uh, Russia, China, the collective power of the nations is nothing to God and inconsequential. Consider these comparisons. First, verse 15, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. All right, so Isaiah's got his class and he says, okay, you're going to the well and you're getting your water for your family and you're coming home. And on the way, 
you splash out a drop, a single little bitty drop out of your bucket, what are you going to do? Are you going to go back to the well and redraw water to get your drop back? Are you going to panic? No, it's insignificant. It's utterly inconsequential to your task. That is the nations. <laughs> they're, they're nothing. They're inconsequential to the plan and purpose of God. Their power is inconsequential. They are regarded as specks on a scale. Specks of dust on a scale. The best comparisons that we could come up with if you gather up all the nations and say this is the power of the nations. It's like if you're buying your grain at the market and you, you, you're adamant that the... Um, the, the, the vendor wipes down the dust on the scales before he measures your grain because you don't want him to overcharge you. Now, some of you may be like that. <laughs> but to most people in the world, that's inconsequential. This is the nations to God. Third, he lifts them up like fine dust, the, the island. So take the world superpowers Take all the nations, bring them together. Their power is nothing to him. And so in summary, verse 17, they're nothing. And actually, what's more, they're less than nothing. And meaningless. Now that's not to say he doesn't care about them. Right? This is comparisons. Remember, Isaiah is comparing God and the nations. And when you compare the two, it's nothing. Is that how you live and think and operate? He's not saying that he doesn't care. He's saying that the power, the force, the strategies, the plans, the, the packs, the uh, whatever that the nations come together to do have no impact on the advancement of his purpose. They are utterly inconsequential. In fact, the only significance that their plans and packs have is that unwittingly they are accomplishing his purpose. Isaiah says, uh, that God whistles for these superpowers to come to him like he would whistle to your dog. And they come and they do his bidding. God is entirely unaffected by the might of the nations. In verse 16, we see that the collective worship, not only the collective power of the nations, but the collective worship of the nations is inconsequential to God. He writes, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Uh, in the ancient Near East, Lebanon was something like the redwoods of California. You take all the redwoods of California, take all the beasts of Texas, the livestock of Texas, and you make this wonderfully great uh, sacrifice and offer it to God and think, oh, isn't he going to be affected and pleased and then now won't he... He be moved by us and do what we want him to do. No. The worship, in order to influence God, has no impact on God. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need the worship of the nations. 
He doesn't need the beasts of the nations. They are his. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But the point here is that the collective might, the collective worship, all the best that the nations have to offer fail to affect God. Why? Because they are nothing to him in comparison to his greatness. So why would you go to the nations for help? Why would you go to Egypt? Why would you go to Assyria? Why would you look to Babylon to help you? These nations are just doing the bidding of God. Why don't you go to Him? Once you lose sight of God's greatness over the nations, you will live in a state of constant fear. You'll look to the state to be your protector and provider, your shepherd. But... Once you see the greatness of God and you maintain a clear vision of Him, you will live fearlessly in the world. And in one sense, you'll become almost a danger to society. Why? Not because you're, you're going to hurt society, but because you were unmoved by the most powerful people that walk this planet. You know that the president is merely doing the bidding of our God. You will know that every power is subjugated to the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can whistle when the world is falling apart because you know that God is working out His sovereign, good, powerful purposes. People that have seen the greatness of God live without fear. So why should we strive to behold the greatness of God? Well, I'll tell you why. Because everything hinges on your apprehension of a great and powerful God. When you look at God compared to nature, compared to the collective uh, wisdom of nations, the collective power of nations, we see that God stands untouched, unaffected, incomparable in His greatness. And He is the one who has promised to be our shepherd. He is the one who has promised you that not a hair of your head will be touched without my allowance. He is the one who filters everything that comes into your life through His loving hand. He is a great, great God. And if we lose sight of Him and His greatness, we begin to lose everything. So Lord, help us to strive to comprehend the greatness of God. Father, we pray that You would in fact do that. That our vision of You would increase, that we would be able to comprehend something of Your majesty to the degree that we have yet begun to see. Lord, we pray that you would work this for your glory and for the good of your people. Amen.